called it Kill Devil, and he used it to kill 100 men. We'll talk about Sam Hildebrand's gun and other things when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. As a child, I spent a lot of time at the big office building just reading books. My mom insisted I stay in the highway on-ramp to finish my education. So she dropped me off at the office building before going to her second job. She didn't want me working at the vacant lot like my dad. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. I'm Mary Hart, and this is AWRT Empowering America. Born in 1897 in Philadelphia, Marion's musical talent was obvious right from the beginning. In 1925, Marion entered a New York Philharmonic voice competition, and she won first prize. She debuted with the Philharmonic a few months later. In 1939, Marion was invited to perform at Constitution Hall. But since the Daughters of the American Revolution owned the hall, they denied Marion's use of it because she was black. Eleanor Roosevelt resigned her membership in protest and arranged a concert for Marion at the Lincoln Memorial. Over 75,000 people attended. In 1955, Marion became the first African-American to join the Metropolitan Opera. In 1991, contralto Marion Anderson received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Empowering America is brought to you by the Foundation of American Women in Radio and Television and is made possible through the generous support of AT&T, the world networking company. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Kirby Ross, editor of the autobiography of Samuel S. Hildebrand. Before we get back to our subject, uh, I will say thank you to our Engineer Anthony has done a fine job keeping things together here, keeping the static out this week, and coming up with some very interesting and creative new commercials for us all to listen to during the breaks. Um, but historical pedant that I am, uh, if you heard the commercial about Marian Anderson uh, that we just heard, many of us know the inspiring story of her uh, concert in Washington, D.C., and Eleanor Roosevelt's work to secure a venue for her at the Lincoln Memorial when she couldn't use Constitution Hall. The DAR, Daughters of the American Revolution, gets sort of a bad rap for not letting her perform there. Uh, there were actually civic uh, regulations. Uh, the city of Washington itself segregated many of its facilities, and the DAR didn't really have uh, a legal option to to have an African-American performer use that hall. It was segregated not just by their choice, but by uh, uh, by other choices. As I understand the story, now maybe I should look that up and confirm that I'm right. But my recollection is it wasn't just the fault of this particular organization, uh, but part of the, the overall culture at the time. Washington was very much a southern city in the 1930s. Uh, it doesn't excuse what happened to her, but it spreads the blame more broadly so we can't scapegoat any one organization for past segregation. Um, but enough of that. Um, if we're going to uh, look for people we want to to blame in history and look back and, and the historical figures and say, oh, what was wrong with those people, we've got a good one today in this character, Samuel S. Hildebrand, the renowned Missouri bushwhacker. 
uh, whose autobiography uh, was originally published, uh, I believe, in 1870, but is now out in a new edition. Uh, Kirby, am I right about that date? Is that when this book first came out? 1870, yes. Uh, it went through one printing. Uh, Hildebrand was killed shortly after it was released, and uh, he, in his death, uh, he dropped off into obscur- in obscurity, and so, so too did the book. Uh, I... Uh, I've been doing a variety of research in, on southeast Missouri and the warfare down there during the Civil War, and I would consult with Hildebrand's book on occasion. Uh, the opinions regarding his book ranged from outright derision to you believe you can believe everything it says, from depending on who the person was you were talking to. Uh, as I was doing my research, I would come up with. I wasn't researching Hildebrand specifically, but I would kept uh, Hildebrand material st- kept cropping up in in what I was researching, and as I as it would crop up, I would make a copy of it and file it away. And uh, it finally occurred to me that uh, I probably have enough there to uh, add on to the book and and uh, show that it, it could be useful as a resource tool for for uh, historians. So, well, uh, you've you certainly done that. The book has approximately uh, just under a hundred pages of annotations, and these are often quite thorough textual annotations that uh, have excerpts from from letters, from diaries, from official reports, from newspapers uh, that you connect to the events Hildebrand reports, so that the reader can see if, if Hildebrand is telling the truth or not. And uh, he, he certainly does exaggerate, uh, to put it mildly, uh, a lot of the time. But there's a kernel of truth to most of his stories. Is, is that a fair I, estimate? Yes, I, I would agree with that. Uh, in my research, uh, luckily, uh, Missouri is, they've archived their material, their historical material, materials very well in regard to the Civil War, at least uh, uh, what I've researched. Uh, they had the Missouri Historical Society in St. Louis, the State Archives in Jefferson City, the State Historical Society in Columbia, Western Historical Manuscript Collection in uh, Kansas City, Columbia, Rolla, and St. Louis, and uh, the Civil War materials they have are, are exceptional. Uh, I would go to these uh, archival repositories and just uh, start going through what they had. I it would be, I I wouldn't know what I was really looking for. It was one of those deals where, you know it when you see it, and uh, that's I, I got lucky with a lot of this this Hildebrand stuff. Uh, in in other areas of my research, I was more focused, and uh, was specifically looking for Hildebrand materials, the uh, Provo Marshal records uh, that they maintain at in Jefferson City at the State Archives. Uh, was a, a gold mine of material. I also went through court records, grand jury proceedings that that uh, uh, occurred, uh, grand juries that were impaneled uh, during the 1860s uh, to look into deaths, uh, uh, court investigations. Uh, there was even a court case, one or two court cases I looked to, that post-war court cases. So I I tried to leave no stone unturned. And uh, I, I suppose I was quite lucky in, in coming up with the breadth of material that I did uh, that I was able to add to uh, to the annotations. Uh, and 
I, I, you're correct, the annotations are about 100 pages. The, it's almost um, maybe a little over one-third of the entire book. But I, I want to stress to the listeners that it's not just uh, you know, lists of, of titles of documents or anything like that, but often you will print several paragraphs of a contemporary news story, newspaper story, or, or an excerpt from an officer's report. So the reader can judge uh, from the actual primary source material uh, just how much of Hildebrand's story rings true and doesn't. It, it, the annotations are as much part of the book as the text is. And I, I found I was reading them with my hand with my finger at the back, and I would read the text and go to the note and say, okay, so that did happen. That's, that's right. I would footnote the, I, I went through and uh, just retyped the entire book, the Hildebrand book, and then uh, as I was going through, I would, would footnote uh, uh, different passages that uh, Hildebrand uh, in, the, in his statements, and uh, you, the reader can jump back and forth and uh, when they see the footnote and, and see what else there is to the story in regard to what, what Hildebrand himself is, staying, is saying. And uh, uh, some of these accounts are from other individuals that I, I, I add into my footnotes there were, are, are very obscure. For example, Hildebrand would be speaking in his book about taking on a squad of federals in a remote location, a handful of federals in a shed, uh, gunfight with them, and, and I've actually found an account from uh, one of those federals in that shed telling his side of, of the gun battle. Another time, Hildebrand is being chased by a squad of federals down a, a creek, and I found a, an account by one of those federals that was chasing him down the creek. So, uh, yes, it's uh, uh, the annotations definitely add. Uh, a lot more to the Hildebrand story and add a, a lot of context to it and uh, I, I think it, uh, it it adds to I don't know, it, it adds to the what the guerrilla warfare was actually about by one that participated in it uh, I would say that Hildebrand is probably the most prominent uh, Missouri guerrilla to have left behind a memoir, of course Quantrill was killed before the war was over and he certainly didn't leave a a memoir behind, and uh, Bloody Bill Anderson was killed before the war was over, and, and he didn't leave a memoir behind. So uh, we're, I think we're fortunate to have Hildebrand's memoir uh, with us today. Now, the, the alert listeners out there are all clamoring, raising their hands, saying, wait, I thought you said at the beginning Hildebrand didn't go to school, couldn't read or write. Uh, how then did he produce a memoir? Uh, how did he do that? Uh, he had a, a couple of neighbors that, that lived near him uh, that he had previously resided to uh, before the war. Uh, they were apparently somewhat sympathetic to him, and uh, as he was a fugitive after the war was over, he was a fugitive. In fact, he wasn't killed until 1871, and uh, so long about probably 1869 or so, the book was published in 1870, uh, he sat down, and one story is is that he was hiding in the basement of one of these individuals who was a, a physician. Uh, and uh, during that time, they took down his story, uh, wrote it down, and they published it. And uh, like I say, it was published while he was still living. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he was illiterate, but uh, he had friends that were quite literate. 
and that, who helped him put his story out. And they really did a remarkable job as uh, as a piece of maybe literature is too strong a word, but as a piece of war writing. Uh, there's a very distinctive voice. Uh, there's a lot of colorful uh, use of language, of similes, of sarcasm, of irony, uh, wordplay, um, almost humor, except it's all gallows humor about the people he's killing, so it's not funny. Uh, yes, I, I would say the, the writers, his, his biographers that helped him out were... were uh, very talented, and, and as you read through it, you you know it's Hildebrand's voice that you're hearing. So, uh, yes, uh, they did a quite an exceptional job in that regard. They do, and, and they clearly do sympathize with him. Uh, they're reporting his, his and, and this gets back to what we started with, his, his cold-bloodedness, his descriptions of uh, uh, the casualness with which he described killing uh, his enemies, who are not necessarily enemies of the state or enemies of the Confederacy, but just his enemies, um, is, is, uh, it's, it's chilling uh, in its repetitiveness. Uh, well, one can picture a, a postmodern movie of this being made that would be really, uh, yeah, really an appalling spectacle. It would certainly make a, a good good subject. Uh, when uh, when the war was over, Hildebrand he, he didn't receive a pardon, so far as I could find. Uh, he did go off to Arkansas, where he committed another murder, and he was arrested by the authorities down there. Was tried and was sentenced to hang. Uh, he was assisted in escaping, and after he escaped, uh, he came back to Missouri and, and lived openly near his old home for for a while. And uh, there was quite a clamor in regard to his him living so openly there, and uh, that's when uh, the authorities moved in, and uh, he went into hiding again. Uh, I, during your commercial break, you uh, had referred to his rifle, Kill Devil. Yeah, you know, as uh, we we don't know what kind of rifle it was. There's some speculation that it might have been a Sharps. Uh, due to its accuracy, I, I probably wouldn't disagree with that. But we just don't know what kind of rifle it was. It was in one heated shootout he was having with authorities uh, after the war. Uh, he was trapped in a in a cabin. It was surrounded by a dozen posse members, and he escaped. Uh, he he was he he made escape after escape under uh, dawning circumstances. That was one of the things about Hildebrand when. When his back was up against the wall, he didn't surrender, and uh, I think that it took his would-be captors by surprise many times. But in any event, in this time he was trapped in the cabin and he escaped, uh, he left the rifle behind. And uh, the rifle ended up in Rogue's Gallery in the St. Louis Police Department for some years. And uh, over the years, it's it's disappeared. No one knows where it's at now, but there are documented sources that state it was in the Rogues Gallery at the St. Louis Police Department. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask, and I, I thought it during the as I said during the commercial introduction, I wanted to inquire what kind of weapon it was. He describes early on how he, he uses kill devil and puts a notch in the stock uh, each time he kills someone with it. Uh, yeah, the, the stock would have 
been pretty whittled up, I would think. You'd think there wouldn't be much left of it by the, the end of the war. And at, at first I pictured in my mind's eye a handgun, but it soon became clear this must be a long weapon. Uh, yeah, the, well, the rifle, uh, although he did, uh, there, there's a picture on the cover of the, the book. It's supposedly Hildebrand. There, it's not certain whether it is or not, but it's been represented over the years as being Hildebrand, and you see he has two pistols tucked away in his belt band. Yes, and so, he, did, he did carry revolvers as well. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he was heavily armed. Yes. Uh, when he was ultimately captured and killed uh, right at the end, uh, it was just reading the account, uh, he, the police officers, and he was at a bar in Illinois uh, living under an assumed name, and uh, he got drunk in the bar and was getting a little rowdy, and the police officers came and tried to arrest him, and he pulled out a knife and cut one up, and they wrestled the knife away from him and were hauling him off, and then he would pull out another knife, and, and he did that several times. I'm like, how many knives can a man carry on him? Apparently three or four. Uh, but ultimately, he was wrestled to the ground, and I think the police officers had had enough, and they put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger, and uh, that was the end of Sam Hildebrand. And, and uh, a fitting one, given the way he executed so many of his own prisoners. Well, we're going to take another short break, and we'll come back in just a minute and talk more with Kirby Ross, editor of the autobiography of Samuel S. Hildebrand, the renowned Missouri bushwhacker. We'll be back with more Civil War Talk Radio. 